turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6 will be our focus today. I'll read the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 14. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him As an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law. But under grace. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven. We do thank you for Jesus Christ. And truly he is all we have. So this morning we pray that we would hear his message understand this union we have with Christ. Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would empower us, that you would give us wisdom to know how to obey you, that you would send us out glorifying the one God and seeking to live lives of obedience to him by the power of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Moses stood before Pharaoh... He issued God's demand, let my people go that they may serve me. After 400 years of bondage in Egypt, it was time for the Israelites to go free. After serving Pharaoh in harsh service and miserable bondage, it was time to throw off the shackles of slavery and experience freedom in the Exodus. And in the passage we have read today, Paul tells that story again. He tells the story of a new exodus. Just as God rescued Israel from slavery years ago, so he has now acted in Christ to rescue humans from the bondage of sin. 
Just as God brought Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, what Paul elsewhere calls a baptism. So Christians have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And just as Israel learned to live under the care and authority of their new gracious master as they journeyed to the promised land, so believers connected to Christ, we must learn to yield ourselves to God in willing obedience. And of course, this story of a new exodus is based on the previous passage, what we saw last week, where Paul told the story of a new creation. It's amazing how many similarities there are in flow to the Old Testament story. Genesis with the story of creation and the fall. Exodus with the story of the liberation, the salvation of Israel. So once again, the new creations we are in Christ. Set free from death and sin in Adam. And connected to the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And as Paul concluded there in verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That reign of life that we enjoy in Jesus is greater than the reign of death in Adam. So where does that leave us then as believers? We are new creations. We have been set free from sin. Well, if we continued looking at the Old Testament storyline, and Paul will echo this in Romans, so now we are journeying towards God's promised land. We're journeying towards the completion of God's new creation. So how do we live in the time in between? Who is our Lord and how do we serve him? And what role does grace play now that we are set free? From sin, Do we leave it behind or does it still play a role in our obedience? Well, in order to answer those questions, let's walk through this passage today. In Romans 6, and we'll see it teaches us that Christ's grace produces our willing obedience. Christ's grace produces our willing obedience. And the passage gives us three reasons why. So let's look at those. First... Because we died and live with Christ. And Paul raises a question in verse 1 that sets the tone for the whole passage. He asked in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Here's how Paul ended the previous passage. He summed it up this way. Sin enters the world through Adam. Now the law comes in, but... Rather than solving the problem of sin, trespass increases. However, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Christ's obedience solves the problem. But not only does it merely solve the problem, it triumphs over our sinful disobedience. Well, does that mean then that believers are free to live however they want? If more sin resulted in a conquering grace, does that mean the more I sin, the more opportunity God has to show grace? Is that a good thing? Should we continue in sin to give God more opportunity? Or to come at it from another angle, does the greater reign of grace actually produce what the law could not do? The law could not produce obedience to God because of indwelling sin. So does the triumph of grace 
finally solve that problem? Or does it just give us a license to sin? Well, with reference to that question, a license to sin, Paul answers his question with the emphatic, by no means, or in the very memorable words of the King James Version, God forbid. That's not possible. And he then follows his answer with another question, verse 2. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul says this isn't possible that we would continue to live in sin because of grace. So now let me use this passage to show you why and how. And and in many ways, friends, verse 2 summarizes the whole passage. Big idea right here in verse 2. We are dead to sin. And we can no longer remain in sin. You've been transferred. Any of you ever been transferred through a job? Well, we've been transferred out of the realm of sin, the realm where sin rules, and we've been transferred into the realm of grace. And now that must be evident in how we live. Christians can and do still sin, but our new, our new life, our new position, we have to learn how to put into practice what is true of us in Christ. And so, in most of what follows, Paul focuses on explaining, this is your position in Christ. And then he'll go on to explain how you live it out. So, regarding that position, Paul begins to explain that in verses 3 and 4. He writes, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism... In death, excuse me, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, when you read those two verses, and when you read particularly the baptism language there, it is important to understand where Paul is headed with that idea. And he tells us in verse 5, so we'll explain it in just a minute, but just notice where Paul is going, his big point. Verse 5 reads, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul's big idea in this passage is the believer's union with Jesus' death and resurrection. We are united with him in his death, And we are united with him in his resurrection. That's the big idea. Now the question we probably have as we read verses 3 and 4 is why does Paul connect our union with Christ with our baptism? Is he saying that baptism produces union with Christ? I don't think so. I think he refers to baptism Because baptism pictures union with Christ. And sometimes, biblical writers, this happens several times in scripture, but because baptism pictures union with Christ, sometimes biblical writers will name the sign when they are referring to the reality. In order to get you thinking about union with Christ, Paul names the sign, the sacrament, baptism, 
that pictures union with Christ. It's a powerful image. And I want to, I want you to look again at verses 3, 4, and 5 with that idea in mind. So listen as I read it with some interpretive edits. Or don't you know that all of us who were placed into union with Christ Jesus were placed into union with his death? We were therefore buried with him through union into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul is talking about union with Christ. But he names baptism. He refers to baptism in order to point us to that union. That is the sacrament which pictures that union. And so in many ways, he is making an appeal to us. Become in reality what God offers you in baptism. Through baptism, God sets before us union with Christ. And so Paul says, become in reality what God has offered you in baptism. So what then is the significance of that union? Well, first, let's focus on our death with Christ. Verses 6 through 7 read this way. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Here's what I want you to notice in these verses. I want you to notice Paul's reference to the old self, or again, the old man in some other translations. Now, for the longest time, when I would read that phrase, the old man, I understood that phrase in terms of the believer's nature. Everyone is born with an old sinful nature, and we receive a new nature when we become Christians. Now, I'm not denying that, but I think Paul's phrase here, he means it in a little fuller sense. So rather than viewing our old self merely as your old nature, the phrase refers to who we were in Adam. You see, Paul is continuing the contrast. The contrast of the previous passage, who we were in Adam and who we now are in Christ. And so as one author puts it, the old man, that's you in Adam, not judged, not yet dethroned on the cross. That's who you used to be. That's how you were born. But now that you are in Christ, that old connection It's been crucified. It's been put to death. You've been severed from it. And now, as these verses read, you are in Christ. And as Paul says, the body ruled by sin, it's been done away with. And when he says your body there, he doesn't doesn't just mean your flesh. But he uses that word there to talk about your whole self, who you are as you inhabit this world, as you interact with this world. That 
old connection, that original connection to Adam, it's been rendered impotent. It's been crucified, put to death. And the result is you are no longer a slave to sin. Now, at this point, by the way, friends, I want you to make this very important observation. Paul is not yet describing what you should strive for. He will later. He is not saying here, hey, you need to strive to be dead in Christ. No. He is describing what you are in Christ. What is true of you as a believer, if you are in Christ, you are delivered from the dominating power of sin. The same union that brings you into connection with Christ, the same union that gives you a righteous status, also breaks sin's power. So that's the first big idea, united with his death. And then what else does union bring? In verses 8 through 10, Paul focuses on our life with Christ. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So if we are united with Christ in his death, then we are also united with him in his resurrection. And as we celebrated at Easter, being united to Christ's resurrection means that one day your physical body will rise from the grave and it will rise to glorious new existence. And Paul actually celebrates that right here in this passage. Uh, I think here at verse 8 and back in verse 5. But the emphasis, I think, is on this other aspect. Being united to Christ's resurrection, that also means a new quality of life here and now. Because you are freed from sin's power, you are also connected to Christ's life. And so that's why the end of verse 4 promises we too may live a new life, a new quality quality of life. Verse 13 commands, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So your union with Christ, the spiritual connection, the connection to Christ that the Spirit creates and that is witnessed in baptism, that union means you have the power to say no to sin And yes to God. And as I've already said, in just a moment, we will see Paul admonishing us. Okay, now, here's how you live. Here's how you live in this reality. And we're going there. But before I leave the point, I do want you to see that Paul spends most of his time in this passage laying the foundation. And so we dare not separate obedience from salvation. That was Paul's concern, right? Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. But nor should you as a Christian make the mistake of thinking that obedience is just something you do and that it doesn't have any reference to who you are in Christ. 
as if God gives you salvation, that's free, that's grace. Now the obedience part, that's all up to you. That's not how obedience works. It's not, you know, it's, it's as if God was the quarterback and he can make the great pass to you, but you've got to run it into the end zone. It's not how it works. The whole work is of God. And so true holiness, true obedience, they will only come about as the outworking of the life that you have in Christ. You will not become holy merely through effort or through programs or thinking right or trying hard enough. First, foundationally, you have to trust in Christ. And you have to appropriate, you have to receive what we have through union with him. Now, having said that, Paul does not end the passage by just admonishing us, okay, rest in Christ. He doesn't start, stop there. Starts there, doesn't stop there. Now he shows us, here's how you utilize that power. And so the second reason that Christ's obedience produces our willing obedience is because we reckon with Christ. Reckon with him. Now, I know reckon, that's a bit of an older word. I I remember my grandparents using it all the time when I was a kid. So I would ask them, are we going to go to the park or are we going out to eat tonight when they would visit? And they would say, I reckon, which meant, I suppose so. We'll find out. Be patient. Well, in verse 11, Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So just as you are dead and alive, well, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And I'm getting reckoned because here the King James, the New King James read, reckon yourselves to be dead. Or the NLT reads, consider yourselves to be dead. It's hard to find that one word that just perfectly captures the idea. But I want you to see that Paul is saying you have to take what is true and you have to reckon with it. That's his big idea in verse 11. Christians who have died with Christ, objectively, must now regard themselves as dead to sin. Christians who are alive with Christ must regard themselves as alive to God. You have to learn to view yourself in light of your union with Christ. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm not just saying like positive thinking, you know, I, I think I can. But, but there is a faith aspect here. There, there's a mental aspect. In, in other words, Christ has given you new life. And so you have to accept that by faith. We, we, we plead with people, do we not accept the gospel? Well, Paul pleads with the Christian here, accept the gospel, accept this truth of the gospel and receive it by faith and then go out and live in that reality. So again, friend, what is your position? Who are you? You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. So my question is, have you considered that? Have you duly reckoned With that status. One author writes, Our minds and our hearts, again, it's not all mental, our minds and our hearts, they must constantly attend to this truth so that we might live in a way that is consistent with it. 
Another author writes, Christians must deepen their faith continually to become more and more aware of their union. They must arm themselves with the mentality that they are dead to sin. The same author admonishes us, accept the saving event embodied in baptism. This is the hinge verse, so to speak. This is what you are. This is what you need to do. But here's the hinge. Here's the bridge. You must consider it to be true. And I just want to, I want to make something clear. I don't think this is like step two in Christian living, like something you do later, maybe much down the road. No, it, it's not like you become a believer and then later you'll, you'll take the step to become obedient to Jesus. That's not my point. Paul says sin's power over you is broken. That happens when you get saved, when God puts you into union with Jesus. The, the process begins immediately. It's the essential proof of saving faith. But what I am trying to say is there is a sense in which we as Christians must remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. And we have to do that in order to live for Christ. Jerry Bridges, and this is what we studied with the men's Bible study, Jerry Bridges calls this preaching the gospel to yourself. So if the end of Romans 5 proclaims to you, you are righteous in Christ, And sometimes you've got to remind yourself of that. By faith, you accept the righteous status Christ gives you. Well, Romans 6 teaches you, you are empowered in Christ. Empowered to live lives of obedience to God. And we have to accept that. So that finally, we come to the last reason. Why does Christ's obedience produce our willing obedience? Because we surrender to Christ. Verses 12 and 13 read, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It's the third leg of the stool, so to speak. Because sin's power over you is broken... And because you've considered such things to be true, now we learn to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And that is the Christian life as we sojourn to the new creation. And I want you to notice Paul's commands are thorough. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin. Rather, offer every part of you. To God for righteousness. So we have to learn, by God's grace, by God's power, say no to sin. I don't mean that, the hey, just do it, just get over it, what's wrong with you? I mean it in the sense of conviction, surrender, and decision. We must resolve, we will say no to sin. We will say no with every part of us. No part of you is off limits from God's claim. And that we will also be those who say yes to him, who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That we will be quick to resist temptation. We won't nurse it for a little while in our mind or just skim casually on our phones. Hey, who knows what I'll come across? No, we resist temptation at the outset so that the enemy can't establish any foothold, can't gain any position 
by which we would be further tempted. Paul is very thorough here. He is also rather vivid. He says, don't offer yourself to sin as an instrument. That sounds like music to our ears. The original word probably refers to a weapon. Don't let sin weaponize you. Don't let sin weaponize any part of you. And why would Paul use that language? Because sin is violent and destructive. It tricks you. You think it will make you happy. It will make things better. It will always make them worse, at least eventually. Be sure your sins will find you out, Scripture warns us. So don't let it in your front door. And while you lock your front door to sin, lock the back door. Lock the windows. Don't let sin get in any part of you. Why? Not only because of all that has been said, but because of how Paul concludes in verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And by the way, the structure of this verse, it's a promise, not a command. So Paul's given the commands, but he circles back to where he began, with the good news of God's promise in Christ. Sin will not master you. Why? Because you are no longer under the condemning or the sin-aggravating power of the law. That apparent solution could not solve the problem of sin. But what you are under is the reign of life, the authority and the power of God's grace. That is your new master. And far from grace telling us, hey, do as you please. No, that was the question Paul set out to answer. And now he has. Grace does not tell you to do as you please. Grace teaches you to say yes to God and no to sin because of your union with Christ. And so in conclusion, let this passage, friends, let this passage challenge you and encourage you. Maybe you need a challenge today. Maybe you need both. Maybe you need a challenge today. You can't honestly say that you live a life of full consecration to God. You've been sloppy or just not attentive in the area of sin. Then let the passage challenge you. If you are baptized, if you claim to be in Christ, that you should live as those who are dead to sin and alive to God. That is the claim Paul, or excuse me, God has placed on you. Now maybe you're, you're still outside. You, you haven't even made that claim. And I would just ask, are you tired of sin dominating? Christ will set you free and give rivers of water. And on the other hand, friend, maybe today you need an encouragement. You still sin. And you can't figure out why. I mean, after all, I'm dead to sin. Why why do I still sin? And it discourages you. Or maybe certain temptations continue to nag you. You resist them, and yet they still rear their ugly head. Do notice, as we went through the passage, it never said, we won't sin. It said, we won't be ruled by sin. And live in sinful actions, and there's a huge difference between those two. And granted, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't in this passage say, oh, here's why you still sin. 
In other passages, he touches on what we call the flesh, that part of us that generates evil desires or that finds sinful things outside attractive. And Paul, in other places, says, mortify it, resist it. Paul doesn't go into that here, but that's why you still experience temptation at times. But not only that, not only is that flesh still hanging around, sometimes, quite simply, living the Christian life involves learning new habits, learning new ways of thinking. And the big idea is that we learn those habits, behaviors, desires, ways of pleasing God, step by step. It's like any diet. It's like any exercise regimen. It's not all about going to these extreme steps and immediately seeing results. I didn't lose the five pounds this week. It's are you engaging in a healthy lifestyle? Then that is the approach we must take towards sin. That our overall pattern of life would be one in which we are learning to say no to sin and saying yes to God. And starting with the little decisions Uh, resisting temptation the moment it appears. And as those little decisions, step by step, they build into a whole lifestyle of obedient walk with Jesus Christ. And furthermore, lastly, sometimes saying yes to God means saying yes to God. And what I mean by that is that people are not your master. At the end of the day, we will all give an account to God. And we must make the decisions that please Him. Which sometimes makes decisions that displease people. But the question you always have to keep before you is, who is your Lord? And if Jesus is Lord, then you serve Him. And if you are united to Him in His death and resurrection, then His grace will produce in us willing obedience. So let's give thanks to God and let's pray together. And Father in heaven, we do pause here at the end of the service and humbly give you thanks for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for freeing us from condemnation and the enslaving power of sin. And I do pray for our gathering today. If any don't know this grace, may they come to know it today. May they taste and see that the Lord is good. And I pray for our people here that those who are in Christ, believers, they would know the grace of forgiveness. And that we would wrestle with sin vigorously, enthusiastically, that we would make every effort to say no to sin. But help us to do it from this position of acceptance. And free your people who are in Christ from shame and the crippling guilt. May they know that they are righteous in Christ. And so may we then know your power in our everyday life. I pray that we would overcome sins. I pray we would overcome sinful habits. I pray we'd overcome the things that afflict us. And we'd find joy. Joy and holiness. Give us grace to repent of where we've tolerated sin or being been sloppy with reference to sin. Give us grace to repent, to turn away, and to grow. And make this church body, the Roebuck Church, may we be known by true holiness. Above anything else, may our reputation be that we love and obey you and love and serve others and live in holiness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.